listening to The Currency. Welcome. I'm your host. I'm Mike Gaston. And this is episode number 79. It is January 31st. January 31st of 2021. We've got 1 12th of the year done. A month in the bag. 11 to go. This year already picking up steam, picking up speed, rocketing towards a beautiful finish. You're like, Mike, we just got started. Why are you talking about finishing? Because as you get older, time seems to speed up. The, I remember when I was a kid, people would say, well, you know, you're going to be in two years. You're 14 in two years. You can get your uh, learner's permit. You can start driving. And I thought two years, my goodness, I don't think I'll live that long. I don't think I can wait. I don't even talk. I don't even want to think about it because I can't wait two years for anything. I feel like now I could do two years standing on one foot. I mean, I, I like time goes by so quickly. Yeah, I know. I sound like an old guy, but trust me, this is <laughs> this is a real thing. And uh, you'll experience it too. So if you are younger listening to this, enjoy the time you have. Not because I'm an old guy saying, well, you know, you'll be sorry. But hey, time is such a valuable resource. We can't get it back. I mean, you can always make more money. Uh, It's like almost every other material resource there is uh, can be replaced, but time can't. And every moment that goes by is a moment you will never get back. We all have a limited store of time. And the tricky thing about it is we just don't know how much of that store each of us has. We don't know how much time we have on this earth. So kind of amazing this year already for as nuts as it's been, it's going by pretty quickly. And I got to be honest, I'm kind of enjoying this year. Now you'd say, well, golly, Mike, I thought you're a Republican. How could you be happy about this year? I'm having a good time here, kids. I don't know about you, but I'm having a good time. There's some serious problems. Don't get me wrong. I'm not over here being flippant or, you know, not caring about the state of the, the world we live in. But there's just too much amazing stuff going on, too much insanity for me to just sit back and be depressed and angry about it. I do get upset at times, but man... When you look at the world we're living in, you look at the things that are going on, on one hand, it's a little concerning. It's a little scary. And I am one of those guys that's very much like, hey, hey, everybody, uh, I don't know if you see it, but there's a brick wall ahead and we're going about 100 miles an hour. Is anybody paying attention? Whose hand is on the wheel? That's me. I'm that guy. But on another level, I cannot help but kind of sit back and laugh a little bit. Specifically, I'm thinking of these uh, these goons at Reddit on Wall Street Bets, this subreddit called Wall Street Bets. I'm sure you've heard the story. Essentially, GameStop, publicly traded retail company that specializes in video games, video game rentals, video game paraphernalia. Uh, you know, it was a mainstay for many years for for young gamers and old gamers alike. You'd go to GameStop, you get your game, etc. Now, because it's a retail store, and I did a video on this on YouTube, if you want to watch the video, you can jump over there after you finish the podcast, of course. Just uh, go to YouTube, look for Mike Gaston, and I think it's the latest video up. It, it should be, there'll be another one going up in a few days, but it'll it'll be up there. And you can get the, the lowdown while looking at my, my handsome mug in the process. But really fascinating story, and I'll blow out a little bit more that I did not include in the video. So game stop, the stock has not been doing very well. Well, not a big surprise. Retail stores in general, unless you're, you know, like uh, Whole Foods or or uh, Walmart or some of these big stores, you're, you're, you're struggling. A lot of retail struggling right now makes sense. People are buying online digitally. And by the way, one of the reasons that Walmart's doing fine is because their digital side has been picking up quite aggressively. 
But Dame, uh, Dame Stop, GameStop has been struggling a little bit because people don't buy video games in a store anymore. Everybody downloads them. If you want a new video game, you buy it online, you download it into your, your uh, machine, your Xbox, PlayStation, etc., and you're off to the races. Whereas in the old days, it was kind of like Blockbuster. You'd go in and get a cartridge. You might rent it. You might buy it. You come back and trade your other ones in for some money. And that was GameStop's thing. Well, they've been struggling and uh, because their model's broken. But, you know, what I did not include in my video, but um, I find very interesting, is that a while ago, the stock, you know, was struggling. It got down to like four bucks a pop. And this is back in, say, November 2020. Well, this investors started getting involved. Uh, a guy named Ryan Cohen, he was the former CEO founder of Chewy's. I don't know much about Chewy's, but he jumped in about 10% of the stock. And this caused the, the price to jump a little bit. And I want to give a shout out to um, you know one of my subscribers on YouTube. His name is Clayton Chan. He kind of filled me in on some of these details. So props to Clayton. Clayton, if you're listening, thank you so much. Fantastic to get this kind of info. But essentially, this Ryan Cohen uh, jumped in, bought 10% of GameStop's stock. And this caused the price to jump. Now, what had happened is before he had done that, because the stock was struggling, a lot of these massive hedge funds had a short sell on the stock. They were betting against it. And when you short a stock, you know, most of us, if you ever buy stock, we all tend to go long on a stock, meaning you buy it hoping the price is going to go up. But that's not the only way that investors do things. You can look at a stock, you can look at a company's fundamentals and say, you know what, I actually think this stock is going to go down. I think the company's overpriced for whatever reason. Let's say you, they're having management issues or supply issues or competitive issues, et cetera. You can go, well, I think this stock today is $10, but I think in a month from now, it's going to be $5. And you can short it. And the way that people short a stock is they go and they borrow the stock. They don't buy it. They borrow it and they sell it at a higher price. And then they wait for the stock to go down and they buy it back cheap and return it to the seller, to the, to the loaner, the one that, that uh, loaned it to them. So, so for instance, if I want to short GameStop, I go to someone that already has GameStop stock, I borrow it and I sell it at $10 per share. And then I wait for it to drop down to $5 per share. And then I buy it back because I sold it for 10. I got 10 bucks in. And then when I sell it again for five, well, then I'm, or when I buy it back for five, I've made five bucks. I keep five of the 10 that I initially made. So I sell it at 10. I buy it back at five. And then I give it back to the person who loaned me that GameStop stocks. So I just made five bucks. I didn't even have to own the stock. I just shorted the stock. And so a lot of hedge funds had shorted GameStop, knowing this company's struggling, it's not healthy, its business model is past its prime, it's probably not long for this world, so they shorted it. And that's public knowledge. When you short a stock, other people get to know about it. And so what that does, that also creates a bit of a market drive where people start to say, well, gee, these guys are shorting the stock, that mu that's a signal to the market that it's probably overpriced. If I'm in, I, I probably want to get out. If I'm holding GameStop, I know all oh, these, the price is going to continue to go down. I'm going to dump the stock, et cetera. So this is kind of like a, a cycle. It creates a cycle. So this Ryan Cohen jumped in, this former founder CEO of Chewy's, and he bought 10% of the stock. And well, the market said, well, hold on a second. This guy's buying. So 
he helped raise the price. Then he increased his holdings to 13%. So he kept investing, letting people know that he really believed in the company. He got involved in the board. He started helping them navigate towards more of an online model and upgrade the company and just doing a lot of stuff. Like he supposedly grew their e-commerce by 3x and trimming a lot of losses. They're just doing a lot of stuff. They close stores. They're trying to do the right thing to get the company healthy. So when he got on the board and tried to turn this dinosaur around, make it more profitable, the hedge funds said, you know what? Now, typically they'd say, oh, we made a bad call here. We, we thought this was going to go down. This guy's actually turning it around now. This is a healthier company. The fundamentals of the company are better than we thought. And so now we should get out. Let's get out before we lose money because he's going to, the price is going to keep going up and we won't be able to buy low. So let's get out. So they would typically sell to cut their losses and move on. But they refused to, did, to do that. And in fact, they doubled down on their position and then they tried to manipulate the market. They got on all kinds of TV shows. They started publishing articles and getting press out there about how bad GameStop was. This became kind of a battle between the hedge funds and the work that this Ryan Cohen was doing. And this is part of the story that nobody's hearing about. I didn't talk about this in my video. It really wasn't out there. Uh, but this Clayton Chan gave me the info. So then what happened is the Wall Street bets, the animals on Wall Street bets. And to give you an idea of the kind of guy, these guys are great. They're just so great because they, they like one of the phrases, this is going to get me in all kinds of trouble. We're not allowed to speak this way anymore. One of their things is because um, they're they're saying, well, they're just going to hold their stock. They'll say, we can stay retarded longer than you can stay liquid. You know, this is the mentality of this, these guys on Wall Street bets. And I'll tell you, what, well, what does that mean? So they said, look, this is unfair. And they, I guess they really weren't big fans of, of GameStop to begin with. It's not like Wall Street bets was always a, a GameStop fan. They just said, hey, you know what? This is an immoral, unfair thing. And we might be able to stick it to the hedge funds and make a few bucks in the process. And what they decided to do, they got each other to band together and to start to buy individually, but but en masse, all these guys got together. They didn't buy it through one account, but they individually started buying up as much GameStop, GameStop stock as they possibly could. Hey, and at four bucks a pop, I mean, come on. And it's pretty cheap. So meanwhile, you know, all these hedge funds are on C. NBC and MSNBC and all these financial shows trying to, you know, drag the stock and talk about why the fundamentals are bad and why GameStop's terrible and you shouldn't, you know, you should get rid of it. Like they're trying to drive the stock price down. They're manipulating, you know, they're doing the very thing they're crying about today. So Ryan, he's doing the things to make the company healthier, to turn it around, the things that are responsible manager leadership would do to make something strong and healthy and vibrant for the future. Love to see that. He's in a battle now with the hedge fund folks because they're trying to drive the price down, which hurts the company. It takes away its liquid assets that it has to work with and support that it needs to be able to do the things he's trying to do. The Wall Street Bets crew, they start jumping in en masse and then the stock blows up. They, they were driving it so hard. I mean, the stock hit like hundreds of dollars a share from $4 to $400 to more. I mean, it was nuts. And this all happened, it really blew up last week. This is when everybody paid attention. But this battle's been going on since like November, December last year. It's been going on for months. And all of a sudden it hit the fan. So the Wall Street stock, the Wall Street bets guys and gales, because they were able to throw their money at it, 
and there were thousands of them doing this, they made the price skyrocket, which of course immediately caused a problem for the hedge fund guys. It's one thing when, you know, this Ryan Cohen's able to move the price up a few bucks here and there, 10 bucks there. When it starts going up multiples, like hundreds, like, you know, you go from four bucks to $400, the Wall Street guys, the hedge fund, the massive hedge funds were getting destroyed. We're talking billions of dollars wiped out in a heartbeat. And so what happened is a couple hedge funds, they blinked, they got scared, they started cashing in. They said, let's buy back the stock and get out. We're going to get murdered if we don't get out. And as soon as they did that, that signaled to the market, which drove the stock price even higher. And it just became this crazy cycle where the stock price just skyrocketed like a hockey stick. Fast forward a handful of days, you've got, uh, you've got, <laughs> you've got a hedge funds saying they're going bankrupt. I watched this guy being interviewed. I forget if it was CNNBC or CNN or which one it was, but it was a financial show. They had this old this old Dodger on there. He was a hedge fund guy. And um, he started crying on air talking about this, crying. And when they're like, well, what, you know, what's so upsetting? He tried to pass it off as I'm so concerned for the little guy. Like, you know, these Wall Street guys, these Wall Street bets guys, they're going to get hurt. They, you know, they don't understand the game. Like there's all this BS out there. Like these, these Wall Street guys, these Wall Street bets, Reddit guys don't know what they're doing and we're concerned. And we need the SEC to shut this down because, you know, normal people are going to get hurt. He's crying because the hedge funds are getting wiped out. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars wiped out. It's nuts. It is insane. And this is a fantastic example of something deeper that's going on in our society. You know, I said the, the Wall Street bets, folks, their, their little slogan is, we can stay retarded longer than you can stay liquid. And that's what they're talking about. When they jump in and buy the stock, if they hold on to it and they keep buying and more people jump in and they just hold their position, it forces the Wall Street guys to take a loss. And here's why. When you do a short sale, there's a time limit. You don't have forever to wait for the stock to come back down. The, the, the hedge fund guys, the Wall Street, you know, the big Wall Street players, not Wall Street bets, they've got to, the clock is ticking. They've got to return that stock by a certain date. That's part, of the, that's part of the borrowing agreement. You don't get to borrow ad infinitum. You don't get to borrow forever. So you've got to make your deal before that clock runs out. And so, these, so the Wall Street bets guys are saying, hey, because think about it, you got a few thousand people each with a thousand dollars invested, you know, like, like it's a four dollar stock. I, I, I throw a thousand dollars, which, hey, that's not chump change for the average person, but but they can get by without it. It's not going to destroy them. It's a thousand bucks. It's a gamble. People spend that going to a Turning Stone, you know, casino or something in, a, in an evening for a fun night out with the, with the folks. It's a working class. It's accessible. And they're saying, well, I, each one of them is like, I don't mind holding my $1,000 position. I'm not in that, like, you know, I'll make a ton of money, but I don't mind holding it if that means that the hedge fund guys are going to take it in the neck because eventually the hedge fund guys are going to have to get out. Now, my question is when the hedge funds finally have to get out, where does that leave the market? Uh, does that actually drive it up even higher for the Wall Street bets guys? Or are they going to actually take a hit? but they don't care. They're like, I don't mind losing a little bit of money if it means these guys lose their shirts. The long and short of it is they're just saying, well, we can stay retarded longer than you can stay liquid. Meaning we can act irrational. We can act in ways that you aren't used to us acting. We can do things that you aren't used to us doing anymore. If that means that we can beat you. 
I alluded there's something deeper going on here. There's a game being played, and it's not just in the stock market. All the stock market's a good example of it. And our second story today will will also highlight that game, but there's a game being played, and the game is really not Democrat versus Republican. The game is not necessarily left versus right. Those are real battles, etc. but that's not necessarily what's going on here. There's a bigger game going on. In the Wall Street bets, kids have figured it out. They've exposed it. And that game is it's the elites versus the people. Now, I'm no uh, fan of the proletariat. I'm not, an, I'm not a Marxist. I'm not big on, on uh, economic groups and conflict and the Hegelian dialectic. I don't believe you know, in collectivism and we've got to fight you know, against those that are different than us so that we can you know, grab power and destroy them. I'm not, I'm not big on all that. I'm not big on that. I think that's destructive. I think it's dark. It never ends well. History's shown us that these ideas, whether they're true or not, whether Hegel and Marx identified a real thing or not, is immaterial. They're not workable. They're ideologies that are not workable in the real world. You're going to do cultural Marxism and say black people have to fight white people, you know, for their freedom and only one side can, you know, oppress and, and destroy the other side. That's the only way this can work. Well, I'm sorry. That's an anti-rationalist, anti-realist view of the, of the world and the universe. I reject that. I think that we can work things out. I think that we can work together. I think that we can align interests. I think that human nature is a problem. We have a sin problem in this world. We have a, we have, there's something broken in humanity. But to pit one identity group at, uh, against another, whether that identity group is based on sex, whether it's based on race and ethnicity, whether it's based on age, or whether it's based on economic and wealth uh, criteria, to pit groups against each other like this and just say, well, it's the way it is, is, is lazy. It's a lazy, destructive, retrograde way of thinking. That said, there is something going on here. So when I talk about, you know, the elites versus the people, that's a real thing. And that doesn't necessarily come out of Marxism. It doesn't come out of identity politics. It doesn't come out of ideological, this, that, and the other thing. It comes out of, you know, the, the early 19, you know, early mid 1900s. It comes out of this idea of distributive democracy and I've talked about this before, but essentially the idea being the country was wired to be a republic, a classical republic, which assumed that each individual was responsible, that they would get involved in the civics of the society, that they would be involved in the figurative and the literal town square, that they would air their thoughts, that they would argue ideas, that it would be rigorous, that it would be muscular that we would go back and forth on ideas, we'd hammer things out, we'd make decisions, and everything was towards making the republic better and stronger, that people took responsibility for themselves, they were helpful to their neighbor, we worked together, not as a collective, but as a, as a society, as a nation of strong people, wanting each other to thrive, but also taking personal responsibility, arguing things out in the public square to make a greater nation for all of us. That was the idea. That's a republic. Well, you know, the left, the progressives at some point said, you know what, this whole idea of democracy, giving people a vote, it's not working. People are just too stupid. They don't make the right decisions. They don't choose the things that we think they should be choosing. They're not progressive enough. They don't understand the vision of where we're trying to take the country. 
they're just too dumb. They, they can't be trusted to vote. So what we need to do is have a distributive democracy instead of an, a participatory democracy, or even better yet, a classical republic. Uh, we need a distributive democracy, which means that let's let the experts run the nation. Let's let the experts run the nation. And, and the people, the workers, the employees, the people, they can just have leisure and enjoyment because the more wealth we can create, the more uh, abundance and material uh, uh, abundance that there is out there, then, then, you know, look, have them do their job, but then let them enjoy themselves. Cold beer, watch a game, go to a concert, fall in love, make a family, you know, buy a fast car, just get into the things that they're into, enjoy themselves, watch a movie, read a book, whatever you're into, we want you to have access to that. We want to make sure more and more people in our society enjoy more and more luxury and leisure and pleasure. We want to distribute the benefits of our society out to the people and then tell them, hey, don't worry about it. Let the experts run the show. Let's let the scientists and the clinicians and the medical doctors and the political professionals and the legal professionals and the, you know, the technological professionals, let all of them make the big decisions. Let them wrestle with these things, think them through and figure out what's good for us. And just you take your hand off the wheel, you, you proletariat, you pleb. And uh, just enjoy your football game and drink your cold beer and shut up. That's essentially it. I mean, a lot of this came out from Walter Lippmann in his work, I want to say in the 1920s through the 19, early 1950s. But he was one of these thinkers that you know, was really big on this idea that uh, the, the average Joe, he just doesn't have what it takes. Let the elites do their thing and let's distribute, let's distribute the pleasure, the leisure, and the, and, and the, uh, and the luxury. So, you know, you look at the society today and you look at the situation where we have the elites versus the people and the people are starting to say, well, hold on a second. What if I don't want to just watch a football game? What if I don't want just to have a cold beer? What if I want to be free? What if I want to be the captain of my own future, my own path, my own desires? What if I want to have my own horizons that I go after? What if I don't want you managing every aspect of my life? Because this is what happens when you let an expert take over. They really take over. I mean, God love my attorney. And Dave, if you're listening, you know I love you, brother. You know I love you. But if you let an attorney, and Dave's not one of these guys, but if you let an attorney make your legal decisions for you, you'll never do anything because everything has risk. An attorney's job is to mitigate risk for you, to protect you. If you own a business or you have investments, et cetera, their job is to look out for you. Now, now my guy, he's like a, he's like a kickboxer, street fighter. Dave's, Dave's a hitter. He's your guy that you want in a firefight. He's that kind of guy. He's unique. But I mean, you know, if you talk to an attorney, it's really about risk mitigation. And you say, well, should I do this? No, you shouldn't because it's risky. A smart person says to the expert, tell me what you think okay, I shouldn't do this. Why? What would the outcome? What's the upside? What's the downside? Like inform me, share your expertise with me, and then you make the decision. And I think historically in America, that's kind of the way we treated people. I said, look, the doctors will tell you, be careful. Don't do this, do that, exercise, diet, blah, blah, blah. And then we go, okay, thanks. And some of us listen, some of us don't. Some of us listen at certain parts and times of our lives and other times we don't. We, we take our lives into our own hands. We listen to the experts, we hear them out, and then we make our decisions about our lives. But when you let the experts run the show, when they drive the car, when they've got the horse's reins in their hands, 
they make decisions based on their expertise, not based on your liberty. They don't give a shit about your liberty. That's not their problem. And the thing is, you know, someone goes, well, I'm Dr. So-and-so, highly decorated, a Nobel Peace Prize, like all these, you could have all the creditations and laudits and plaudits and all these things in the world. But when you're an expert, you're an expert in your field. It doesn't mean that you know how to run a family. It doesn't mean that you have a good marriage or you have good relationships. It doesn't mean that you know how to treat employees. It doesn't mean that you even know anything about other areas of expertise, but we tend to have this halo effect mentality. We take an expert, someone who's an expert in, in medicine, and we think, well, this person, she's probably got it together on every level. Look how successful she is. She must be a phenomenal uh, investment person. She must be a phenomenal uh, leader. She must be a phenomenal mother. And you fill in all these blanks. The fact of the matter is she might be a fantastic clinician and suck at everything else. And often that's the case because you can't be fantastic at these things at, without something else giving without having personality issues, without, without taking time away. Like you can't like run a hospital and be a phenomenal mother to your four-year-old at the same time. I don't care, male or female, you can't do it. Because again, you are a limited entity with limited time. You only get 24 hours in the day, just like everybody else. And you've got to decide how to spend them. And if you're going to become a really deep, powerful, impactful expert, sometimes you've got to let things go. Things that... Others of us would say, well, I'm not willing to. A lot of you listening say, I love my kids. I don't want to just let that time go. My kids are too important to me. That's fantastic. That means you're going to be a fantastic, present, involved, wonderful parent that's going to go to bed at night in your 50s and 60s without regrets when you lie there because you're going to say, I spent time with my kids. But you're probably never going to run a hospital. You're probably never going to be president of the United States of America. You're not going to be a military five-star general, et cetera, because you made choices. That's okay. But when you let the experts run a society, you have to understand that you're letting people that sometimes are not balanced, sometimes don't know about other aspects of life. They're really good in their field, but they're not good in other things. You're letting them make the decisions. And when they make the decisions for your life, it has an impact across the board. And so we're sitting here in this distributive democracy. This isn't so much this Hegelian dialectic, this Marxist you know, proletariat versus the bourgeoisie or whatever. It's not that, although you can frame it that way. But the problem is this progressive idea of a distributive democracy. We've taken our hands off the wheel. We've abdicated responsibility for ourselves. We may demand that the experts take responsibility for us. My God, if I get sick, if I get COVID, it's someone else's fault. Who's going to pay for this? It's the president. It's the vice president. It's Congress. It's my governor. It's my boss. Anybody in leadership, it's got to be their fault. It can't be my fault. Or it can't just be an act of God or a random thing that just happened. No, it's someone's fault. Rarely do you meet someone and go, yeah, you know what? I don't know whose fault it is. My problem. I got to deal with it. And here's what I'm doing. Like, that's what a grown-up does. Or that's what they used to do. We've become so inured to this idea of the distributive democracy that we just look for someone else to fix our problems for us. I'm not saying that those in leadership, et cetera, shouldn't have any responsibility, but I think that there is the need to have a discussion about, well, where are those lines? My God, we want them to be responsible for everything of our life. We want pleasure, happiness, relaxation, leisure, wealth, success, 
you know, fulfillment, peace, joy, we want all these things. We're looking to them for that. It's ridiculous. Why are we looking to them? And when we do that, we're basically saying, here, let me hand over my freedom. Let me hand over my own responsibilities. If you would take care of them, and there's like, yeah, be happy to. I'll take that responsibility. But that also means you don't get to make choices anymore. And that, my friends, leads to unhappiness. <laughs> but there is this, there is this, distributive democracy and there's the, the elites. The elites are running the show. They're making billions of dollars. They're calling the shots. They're letting you know how you can live and how you can't live, how much of your money that you earned, how much wealth that you created, you have to give back. They get to decide what they do with it. They make it arcane and complex and obtuse and opaque. You, you can't understand tax law. You, it's hard to see where the money goes. It, it, there's so much bureaucracy and waste. Now, I don't think that this can all be just fixed with the stroke of a pen. I don't think Donald Trump was doing a good job addressing this. And I sure as heck don't think Joe Biden's going to address it. He's going to make it worse, if anything. But this is what happens when we let go. And so I love seeing this Wall Street bets play where they're sticking it to the hedge funds. And I like the fact that people are framing this as the little guy versus Goliath, as the little guy against the swamp, as the little guy against the bureaucracy, the machine the system. And I hope the little guy wins in this one. I honestly do. I want the little guy to win. I usually do. I want the little guy to win. I think that we're starting to see that the emperor has no clothes. I think we're starting to see that there's a game afoot and that we're on the short end of the stick. My concern for all of us is that we see this thing and then we go, we need collectivism. We need more government. We need someone to protect us from these terrible hedge fund people. Hey, folks, if you're listening to this, the hedge fund people are the people running the government, are the people controlling society. I'm not saying that the guy in the hedge fund also is you know, holding office. They're all connected. They're all colluded together. You don't think those hedge funds send tons of lobbying dollars, millions and millions of lobbying dollars into Wall Street, each one of them? You don't think they have close, close relationships with your congressmen, your senators, our president? his cabinet and staff and so on. You don't think they're all connected? You don't think that they spend time together? You don't think that they know each other? You don't think that power and money coalesce together? Birds of a feather flock together? They absolutely do. Now, I'm not, I'm not so cynical to say, well, let's scrap it all. We need a revolution. I'm not saying that. I think we need reform, not revolution. I don't think we need to burn it to the ground. I think we need to expose it for what it is. We need to reform it. But I think that reformation starts in our own hearts, in our own lives. I think we need to look at ourselves first and say, how am I living my life? What am I expecting from the government? What am I expecting from other people? Am I a productive, contributive person? Am I becoming the best person I can be? Do I work hard? Do I create wealth? Do I care for others? Do I demonstrate? Do I, do I typify what I want to see in this, this country? Do I look like the kind of person that I want to be a neighbor to? Or am I self-centered, pleasure-seeking, consumptive, you know, just wanting to take, always voting for my own self-interest, but not thinking about how those interests impact those around me? And we all, I think we all have to look in the mirror. I, I'm not trying to point fingers. I'm just saying, like, it's great to point fingers at the politicians and the lobbyists and all that and say we should be collectivized and we should. It's ridiculous because what we're not understanding is those people are us. They're just us with more power. They're just us with better position. They're just us with more money. We have to take responsibility for ourselves. And I think the Wall Street Bets kids demonstrate that when we act in ways that are in intelligent and smart and brave, 
courageous that we can actually make an impact. They're not collectivizing. They didn't put their money in a pool and choose an expert to invest in their behalf. They're all investing their own money. They're all making their own decisions, but they're aligning their interests saying, hey, if we work together, we can tell these pricks on Wall Street to get stuffed. And they're doing it. Each individual making decisions, acting, and changing the environment in such a way that the Wall Street guys don't know what's going on. Now, the second story I want to talk about, the second story I want to talk about is the fact that a guy who threw some memes out onto the internets is likely going to jail for 10 years in America. That's right, kids. If you put a meme out there and the man, the big man, the government doesn't like it, the FBI, the Justice Department, if you put a meme out there, that's like a picture with some funny words on it. And it falls, it falls on the wrong side of their humor, their sense of humor. You're in trouble. You could go to prison, federal prison. This isn't about drug dealing. This isn't about human trafficking. This isn't about embezzlement. This isn't about like ripping off, you know, Ponzi schemes where you rip off hundreds of millions and billions of dollars from, you know, old people, et cetera. This is about memes, putting memes on social media could land you in prison. Have you heard about this? Do you know Ricky Vaughn? Anybody heard about Ricky Vaughn? So Ricky Vaughn is, uh, what would you call it? I guess Ricky Vaughn is a um, pseudonym. It's not really a pseudonym. Yeah, I guess a pseudonym. Uh, It's a fake name for this guy. His real name is Douglas Mackey. Douglas Mackey, 31-year-old of West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, was charged criminal complaint in the Eastern District of New York. He was taken into custody uh, on January 27th in West Palm Beach and made his initial appearance. I'm reading this from the uh, Justice Department, the Federal Justice Department News. Uh, It was a press release. Made his initial appearance before U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce E. Reinhart, Southern District of Florida. And uh, according to the allegation in the complaint, the defendant exploited a social media platform to infringe one of the most basic and sacred rights guaranteed by the Constitution, the right to vote, said Nicholas L. McQuaid, acting assistant attorney general of the Justice Department's criminal division. Quote, this complaint underscores the department's commitment to investigating and prosecuting those who would undermine citizens' voting rights. There is no place in public discourse for lies and misinformation to defraud citizens of their right to vote, said Seth D. De Charm, acting U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District. With Mackey's arrest, we serve notice that those who would subvert the democratic process in this manner cannot rely on the cloak of internet anonymity to evade responsibility for their crimes. They will be investigated, caught, and prosecuted to the full extent of the law. So essentially, what's what's going on here? Ricky Vaughn was this pseudonym, this name, this sock puppet account. Uh, created by this guy, Douglas Mackey. Mackey was a shit poster. Those of you that know the term, he was a shit poster. A right-wing guy. This was back in 2016. But essentially, he put together all these right-wing memes. And a lot of them would mock liberals. A lot of them would pump up Trump. Uh, if you ever saw the Ricky Vaughn uh, avatar, I think it was like a Charlie Sheen avatar from one of Charlie's movies where he's a baseball player. He's got glasses on a ball cap. I've seen it before. I think he's got the MAGA hat on, but it's Charlie Sheen, Ricky Vaughn. It's kind of a well-known, he was a huge, it was a huge account. Like I I remember seeing stuff. I don't, I never followed him. I mean, you know, on Twitter, I, I, 
you know, I only follow a handful of people and vice versa. But I, I would remember see people seeing people kind of retweet this guy, Ricky Vaughn. And he would put funny stuff out there. It was really good stuff. Well, he's being accused of of causing voter fraud. And essentially they're they're saying in so many words that like he actually handed Trump the election in 2016. Because he was voting, or he was uh, tweeting, he created this one meme. It essentially said something to the effect of, and, and I won't know exactly, but it was said to the effect, to vote for Hillary, dial 552272 and text Hillary, or, you know, text. So he was, essentially it was one of these things like, to vote for Hillary, you you text the word Hillary uh, to this number, and that's, then you're voting for her. And they were saying, oh, tens of thousands of people called, you know, texted this number, tens of thousands of people. This means that Hillary actually would have won Florida if it wasn't for Ricky Vaughn. You know, he subverted the election. Justice wasn't done. And we're going to put him away for a long time. We're going to make him pay. I just, I just find this really, I find this really difficult. And I think this story parallels what's happening with Wall Street Bets and GameStop. Here's why. First of all, shit posters shit post, and it's their way. It's their commentary. It's their it's their sarcasm. It's their mockery, their satire, of our system, of our country, of our process, of one ideology versus another. It's their way of making their statement. I think it's healthy. We've always, throughout the ages, leveraged things like mockery and satire and humor to pillory and and make fun of ideas or power that we don't like, that we don't appreciate. And I think that's healthy. It can get out of hand. But you look at a comedian, a comedian gets up on the stage, they say outrageous things. We want that. We don't want to stop them from saying outrageous things. Can, can Is it wrong for a comedian to say something racist? Is it wrong for a comedian to be misogynist? Not necessarily. Because we have to give space for outrageous speech. We have to give r- space for speech that we find troubling or, or terrible. Now, if you go to work and your boss is treating you terribly because of your sex, your age, your, your race, whatever, that's wrong. You shouldn't have to be subjected to making your living under the thumb of some trog- trogodolite, 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 I don't know, demagogue, jerk face. <laughs> How come I can't say that word today? I use it every day. <laughs> so I get that. I'm not trying to say all speech is good speech, but we have to have room for things like humor, satire, mockery, and so on. And so this Ricky Vaughn account, they're accusing this guy, this Douglas Mackey, of being this person who deceived, purposely deceived and defrauded people of their vote. They got to ask the question, like, who in this country actually thinks you can text your vote in? Who actually thinks that? And how do we know that those 10,000 or tens of thousands of people that did that thing, that texted to that number, were actually Democrats trying to vote for Hillary? What if it was a bunch of Republicans just having fun with it? What if it was a bunch of 12-year-olds see this Ricky Vaughn stuff, the shit post, and they're like, this is a funny meme. And people just for the heck of it, for giggles, having a beer, they go, well, what would happen? Obviously, the 12-year-old's not having the beer. Uh, But they're just saying, what would happen if I did this? What if I texted to this number? What happens? Oh, nothing happened. Oh, okay. How many people do you think really thought they were voting for Hillary by texting to a number and saying Hillary? It's ridiculous. I mean, this is the, this is the thing that's ridiculous. And so here's what's bothering me about this. We talk about the elites and we talk about the people. 
So here's this Douglas Mackey. He had, he had the termidity. How dare he think that he could leverage democratized communication, that he could get on something like Twitter and be funny and interesting enough to amass attention, an audience. He had a huge audience. I think he had millions of people following him. It was a big account. How dare he amass that kind of popularity and then turn that popularity uh, into a platform to make fun, to mock, and to pillory people? How dare he? Because on the other hand, it's not like there are these massive, massive multi-billion dollar corporations with holdings across all kinds of media and entertainment groups that are able to get their message out on a regular basis where they can actually manipulate elections by highlighting bad and unflattering stories about one candidate and then burying unflattering and uh, bad stories about another candidate. Did you you know that, you know, back when Obama was running for office, he was a smoker. He may still be a smoker. He was a smoker. And the media made an agreement ahead of time that they would not talk about the fact that the guy smoked because they were concerned. First of all, he's a black guy. We got to make sure... You know, all these racists don't try to take him down. But if people know he's a smoker, they might not vote for him. It might make him look bad. And so the media agreed across the board before the election. They would never mention the fact that Barack smokes. They buried it. Now, I don't know that that was like journalistic. You know, did we all need to know that he smoked? Did we need to know his shoe size? I mean, you know, I'm not saying that they failed the American people by not telling us and Barack would not have won. If we all knew he was a smoker, my point is just that they decided not to tell us something that was an obvious thing. They hid it. Why? Because they wanted him to win. It was historic. A black man becoming president? My gosh, that's a huge historic moment. And fantastic. We had that moment. Good thing. But you can't tell me that that's not voter suppression. You can't tell me that that's not voter manipulation. You can't tell me that... And that's a, that's a very minor, I mean, the, the, you know, the whole, I don't know if you remember the whole Steele dossier. <laughs> I mean, this is before even the Russia investigation, but as soon as that Steele dossier came out, which by the way, was paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign. Nobody, nobody argues that, you know, it talked about this thing where Trump wanted to be urinated on by prostitutes or some just bizarre allegation, bizarre allegation. So you've got the, so you got Trump's opponent pays for oppo research, the paper comes out with these just, you know, ludicrous, crazy allegations about Trump. And even if they were true, like, well, how are you going to prove that? Like, where's that coming? It was just, and the media ran with it. Like they couldn't wait to get that public during the election. You don't think that that impacted people's opinion? I don't feel bad for Trump. I'm like, oh, poor President Trump. He, he was such a saint, such an angel. No, he, he was a terrible person. I mean, the, you know, the whole Stormy Daniels, I mean, it's just, it's just disgusting, disgusting. So I, I'm not, I'm just trying to illustrate for you how this works. So when you've got a media that wants to spin a story, they want to suppress certain information, they're going to really push other information that isn't even verified. It's just this salacious hearsay report by some, you know, MI5 British hack. I, yeah, I don't know all the details about Steele, Christopher Steele, but they're running with it. And, and so this Ricky Vaughn, this, this, uh, this, this guy, Douglas Mackey, he's got the termidity to use Twitter to put some shit posts out there. Essentially a photo of Hillary saying, if you want to vote for Hillary, text Hillary to 5522447, whatever the number was. 
and now they're going to put him in prison for a decade. They're going to take a decade of his life away. Some 31-year-old nobody out of West Palm Beach. They're going to destroy him. Why? How dare he raise his head up in this distributive democracy and strip power away from the elites? How dare he put himself in the place of the experts? That's our job. It's our job to inform the American people. It's our job to disinform, to manipulate and deceive. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm really troubled by this. I think that this Ricky Vaughn, Douglas Mackey thing, it, it aligns with this, this GameStop hedge fund Wall Street bets story. There's this deeper thing going on where you and I as average people are being told that we need to mind our P's and Q's. We best watch what we say. We best watch what we think. We best watch who we vote for. We best watch what we believe in. We best watch what kind of country we envision and want for ourselves and our children and our neighbors. We best watch our humor. We best watch our entertainment. We best watch it. Because if you do something, if you put yourself out there, if you dare to take a risk, if you dare to stand up against us, the elites, the experts, the ones running the show, we will crush you. We will break you. We will take everything we have and use it against you. We're the only ones allowed to do these things. We're the only ones allowed to manufacture dissent. We're the only ones allowed to to let people know what they should think. We're the only ones allowed to mock those that we don't like. Yeah, every, every talk show, you know, The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, they all, you know, it, the money they made mocking Trump, every, every you know, left-wing comedian. I can't think of Saturday Night Live making real fun of anybody on the left, but boy, did, they, did Trump give them a lot of material. They'll, they'll pillory the left, I mean, but it's, but it's loving. It's a loving... It's a loving uh, tease. But Trump, it was just, just going to drag him through the mud. And look, Trump, he's an easy target. I mean, my gosh, this guy makes it too easy for them. He's his own worst enemy. But that's, that's how it works. This isn't just left and right. It's elites versus the people. And it was decided long ago that the people shouldn't have a real voice. They don't have power. They need to just consume, learn to enjoy themselves. Uh, and they should be happy. And I think there's a level of outrage from the elites. It's like, look how good you've got it. Look at the country we've created here. How dare you try to wreck it? Why, why would you want to ruin uh, this amazing thing that we have? Look what we've done for you, you ungrateful slobs. <laughs> so that's my, that's my take on it. I think this Douglas Mackey, Ricky Vaughn, I think the, uh, the Wall Street bets kids... This is a growing trend, and I think the elites need to wake up. I think they need to understand that there is a growing group of people, a large group of people that aren't buying the narrative anymore. There's a group that still does, a huge group. They're going to buy the narrative. They're going to watch CNN and MSNBC. They're going to get their talking points. You know, Cuomo's going to get on there. Don Lemon's going to get on there. Uh, Anderson Cooper's going to get on there. That's all CNN. Uh, Rachel Maddow, MSNBC. And even the Fox News crew, they're going to listen to all these folks to get their talking points. But there is a growing group of people that are saying, I want to live my own life. And I'm tired of being uh, a loser. I'm tired of not meaning I'm a loser on my mom's couch, meaning I'm getting the short end of the stick. I'm tired of being pushed around. 
I'm tired of being told how to live. I'm tired of being taxed. I'm tired of being told I've got the wrong sex, skin color, religious beliefs, economic position, et cetera. I'm tired of being on that side of it. I'm going to push back. I'm not letting you guys tell me what to do. I think the elites have to wake up. Now, I think that they are. My concern is their response is totalitarianism. Their response is to clamp down harder. Their response is to shut down any dissent, any freedom, any ability to push. I think their response is to take more and more control. I don't think their response is to say, hey, you know what? Maybe we're out of line over here. Maybe we're not treating people the way we should. Maybe we need to stop being pigs. And in this uh, boomer kleptocracy, these 60 and 70 and 80-year-olds just hoovering up all the wealth in the country through politics, investments, and so on. Maybe the kleptocracy, maybe that should stop. You know, Maybe it's time for other generations like the Gen Xers and the millennials to have their time to help build our society. Maybe we need to make way for the other generations. What parents do you know? What good parent will, will suck the life out of their children for their own benefit? Have you ever seen a good parent that puts themselves first before their child? I've seen a parent put themselves first in harm's way. I've seen a parent lay down their life for their child. I've seen a parent go without to go through deprivation and want and discomfort on behalf of their child so that their child can avoid it, so their child can thrive, so that their child can succeed. But these boomers, these elites, these elite boomers, essentially, and it's not just boomers, it's not just ageism here. I mean, you've got elite uh, Gen Xers and you've got elite millennials as well, but you've got this kleptocracy. You know, someone asked me, I was talking to my little brother the other day, he's like, what's with all these old people running the country? It's like, yeah, what's with them? Why do we have a 78-year-old president? Why was the guy before 76? Why have the people running against them were pretty old too? I'm not, I have nothing against someone with age, but why is it that that generation is not moving out of the way? You know, Elizabeth Warren can get up there and tell us about how she's fighting against the millionaires and billionaires and all that. And we can hear the same from Bernie Sanders and so on. But quite frankly, it's time for you to move out of the way, folks. They won't, of course. They won't. I think it's a fascinating story. I think there's something changing in our society. And uh, I would encourage you to kind of think about it. Take a look at it. I'd love to know what you think as well. I say this every time. Get in touch with me. Hit me up. You can find me on Twitter, Mike Gaston. Uh, You can go to my website, MikeGaston.com. You can sign up for the newsletter. Free kids. No spam. Never was. Never will be. World without end. Amen. Uh, Just throw your name in there, and I'll start sending you some quality product on a regular basis in the near future. Uh, But we'd love to hear from you. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Again, MikeGaston, G-S-T-I-N. Kids, I hope this was useful. I hope you found it interesting. I'd love to know what you think, so hit me up. In the meantime, don't forget, I love you all, and I'll catch you in the next episode.